0: This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get staffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the tracking board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com.
1: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television running and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about navigating your first job as a TV staff writer with Britta Lundin, who is a story editor on the hit CW show Riverdale every Wednesday night at 8,
0: 7 central.
2: Woohoo. Hi, guys. <laughs>
0: Welcome, Britta. we mean been meaning to get you on for a while, so I'm glad you're finally here with us.
2: It's good to be here. <laughs>
0: Just tell us a little bit about your background, how and why you ended up in LA.
2: When I thought that maybe I wanted to go into film... I started applying to film schools in a grad program, because I had already gone to undergrad at that point, for something completely unrelated. What was that? Political science. Okay. Ooh. I was at the time, like the 2000 election had just happened. And I was really like excited about politics. And also, <laughs> the West Wing was on TV. And I was really <laughs> obsessed with that show. And for a long time, I was like, I just want to be like one of the people in the West Wing. And I want to work <laughs> in the West Wing. And I want to be in the West Wing. Not thinking that I just wanted to write for the West Wing, <laughs> not work in the West Wing. So then eventually I came to that realization and I went to film school in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas. Uh, I studied film production and I was making short films and learning how to direct and edit and stuff like that. And then uh, when I graduated, I moved out to LA. That was about maybe five years ago. And I came out here and I was making a lot of digital content and doing like digital producing, working on short and commercials and all that stuff, me all working on my scripts and then eventually like trying to build up writing samples that I could use to get stopped on a show.
1: What were some of your TV inspirations besides the West Wing?
2: My biggest first TV inspiration, the show that like made me realize television was a thing that could consume your life was The X Files, which nice. I discovered in like seventh grade. And mm-hmm. it like very quickly like became my identity. Like I, I was <laughs> like, middle school is kind of like a, a difficult time for everyone. And for me when things got difficult i just sort of started imagining like how much in love mulder and scully were and i would Mm -hmm. think about that instead of thinking about like all the stuff that happens in middle school do you ever write x-files fan fiction oh yeah Uh, yes (laughs) (laughs) yes absolutely very much i mean it's like the first thing you do when it's like 1997 and you have the internet for the first time and you're obsessed with a tv show is you go to like altavista.com and you type (laughs) in the x-files and it's like two seconds later that you're reading short stories about the x and then it's two days later that you're completely immersed in the world of fan fiction. every night you're reading more stories about Mildred School <laughs> and you're just waiting for like Sunday night to come for the next episode to drop.
0: I remember just like saving JPEGs on an image search into a folder and just being like "Yep, yeah, these are pictures of a show that I like. <laughs> <laughs> like the thing yeah. You
2: yeah now you have a Tumblr that you can post those to but at the time yeah you were just like saving photos.
1: <laughs> Printing it out on a black and white paper. <laughs> yeah. One one line at a time. It takes three minutes.
0: (laughs) You mentioned that you were working in LA and building up your samples and stuff. How did you actually get the job on Riverdale? Well, I had written a script called Ship It, which
2: was a feature screenplay that I had hoped would be my feature that I wanted to direct as like a little tiny indie heartwarming story about internet culture and fandom. And I was sending it to sort of everyone I knew, hoping that someone would read it and introduce me to an agent or a manager and had a couple of meetings with reps. And every time they either read the script and were like, you know how to write, very good. You've mastered the craft, but I have no idea what you're talking about, and I don't understand anything that's oh, happening no, in this script. And I'd be like, okay, that's fine. And they'd say, send me something else when you write something else. I think secretly hoping that I would write something that wasn't about like queer girl teenagers who are like obsessed with the internet. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like that's like my brand. And then eventually that script ended up. I mean, it won a couple of different awards. It was a quarter finalist at the Nickel, which got me a few meetings, but didn't really turn into anything. And it was on something called the assistant list,
0: <laughs> I wonder what that is. which is like the
2: blacklist for assistants. I know you guys know about that one. And it was on the bitch list, which is like the blacklist, but for scripts that passed the Bechdel test specifically. Mm-hmm. It won the bitch list that year. And because of that, several people reached out to me to read it. And one of those people was an assistant to an agent. And she loved it. And I met with her and she liked me. And then she sort of put it in front of the agent who loved it immediately. And we started figuring out what things we could do with it. And so I went out for staffing that year, with that as my writing sample. And I met on Riverdale, and I loved them, and they loved me. And and I've been on Riverdale for the last two years.
1: Wow! That's did you have amazing. any uh, TV pilots, or was it kind of your I main did. Uh, sample?
2: I did. And they said, uh, when they loved Chip It, they were like, do you have anything else? You know, to make sure that I wasn't like a, a one hit wonder or something, yeah. I think. And I sent them a pilot that I had written, but like, they didn't care about that one. Right. <laughs> you just wanted to make sure you
0: had written something. Yeah. They didn't read yeah. it. They're just like, they saw there's a script. Good. Yeah, right. they, 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 <laughs> they flipped to the end. And one it's one one. a full length pilot. <laughs> okay,
2: great. Pages. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: You're uh,
1: what was actually that, that process of getting staffed? Did you have meetings at production companies, the network, the studios? How did that work?
2: Mostly what I remember is it all happened so quickly like I got my agent around the time of staffing season and it was just like, a few weeks later that they called me and one day he called me out of the blue and I was getting used to him calling me out of the blue and asking me strange questions. <laughs> and he asked me, Hey, do you like the Archie comics? And I vaguely knew this must be about that show Riverdale that's coming out. And I said, I love Archie comics, love them, love them to death. <laughs> and he was like, Okay, great. That's all I need to know. I'll call you right back. I wait, and I'm sitting there, like, twiddling my thumbs on the couch, like, waiting for him to call back. And he calls back and says, okay, you have a meeting on Riverdale. You're and like, I uh, better read some Archie I comics. <laughs> <laughs> and then I immediately called my friend, who is obsessed with Archie Comics. And look, I've read Archie Comics. I like Archie Comics. I do j- legitimately like Archie Comics. But at the time, I didn't really know that much about Archie <laughs> Comics. So I called my friend, Brandy, who is obsessed with Archie Comics. And I said, I'm taking you out to drinks tonight. You're going to tell me everything you know about Archie <laughs> Comics. And she was like, the- tell me you don't have a meeting on Riverdale. And I was like, I do. And she's like, I'm going to kill you (laughs) out of jealousy. So that meeting, I just remember being really terrified the whole time. But I met with the showrunner first, and he was... It's Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who's my boss now, and I love him. Even in that first meeting, he was so funny and clearly had such a vision for the show that was different from the comics, and so specifically him that I got me really excited. And I was asking him a lot of questions and he had answers for all my questions. And I was like, Oh my god, you're obsessed with Archie comics in the way that I've been obsessed with things in my life. And that obsession is sort of contagious and exciting. So I just remember thinking that the meeting went really well. And then so after that meeting, then they make you meet with Studio, which is Warner Brothers, and then the network, which is CW. And you're talking to executives, and you're trying to be charming and sparkly and fun. And also, like, you can do the work, and you're smart and studious and all that stuff. Responsible. And it's just like a lot. It was just a lot happening in like a very short period of time. And then I I remember standing in line at Spitz waiting for my donor kebab. (laughs) I got the call from my agent that I got staffed on Riverdale, and I just like walked straight out without my kebab and I was like I will come back later <laughs> I, like, stood on the sidewalk in Los Feliz and I like cried and I like, screamed my agent was like okay I, I gotta call you back I gotta go negotiate your contract right now I was like okay okay okay, okay. I just need a minute wow.
0: very exciting. Yeah, like extra garlic sauce I got a job now <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: can afford the condiment now yeah <laughs>
0: Awesome. So you got the job. What was it like going into the room for the first time in that first week when you were finally working on a show as a TV writer?
2: It was extra scary for me because I had never worked in a writer's room before. So some of the people in there had been writer's assistants before or writer's PAs and like were familiar with how writer's rooms worked. And I was not. All I knew was I had listened to a lot of podcasts Mm -hmm. about it. And I sort of had this idea in my head of how it worked, but I didn't really know. And so going in there, I just remember feeling very wide-eyed and like trying to very quickly learn like the politics of the room and the etiquette of the room when you were supposed to talk and how much and how little and meanwhile also trying to come up with pitches for Archie and Betty and Veronica and Jughead and trying to be like personable and fun and someone that people liked but also having good ideas and also not talking too much because I was a baby writer who didn't really know what I was doing and there was just a lot going on and I think it took me balance yeah yeah It took me a few months to be able to figure out how much of myself to put out there and how much to
1: sit and listen to the more experienced people. What were some of those expectations versus reality moments in the room?
2: you romanticize it before you go in there. And you think it's going to be this meeting of the minds and all these creative people sitting around just sort of like breaking story together. And that's true. And it's really exciting. But it's also just like 12 people sitting around a table being smelly and and like eating, talking over each other. And that is the process. But it's not that romantic. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a lot of work. And it's really difficult takes a lot of mental focus and energy and sort of just have to, it's a muscle that you have to learn to work where you can sit at a table and think about story for eight hours at a time or 10 hours at a time or whatever. Before when I was writing scripts, I had a day job and so I would wake up early in the morning and I would work on my scripts for a couple hours before I go to work. My muscle was like waking up, pouring myself a cup of coffee and starting work immediately. Like that took me a while to get used to and then like working really hard for two hours and then stopping. But when you're in the writer's room, you don't just work for two hours and then stop and call it a day. You like keep going, and so at a certain point, my brain would be like, "Okay, your two hours are up," and it's like, "No, you got to keep having opinions about what Archie should do next." And it was you, eight hours to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got to keep going. And when you are breaking story in the room, how do you guys do that? Do you start with like, "Here's a mystery, and let's work backwards," or like, "What's the kind of macro process of figuring out your storylines?"
2: So the first two or three weeks in the room, we broke the season-long arc, which is important on Riverdale because it's kind of a soapy show. And the first season, there's a murder mystery, who killed Jason Blossom? And then there's also character-based arcs, like who's kissing who? And every individual episode... When we're, say, breaking episode six, we can look at the board that has the season-long arc on it and say, okay, when we were breaking the whole season, we were saying that in episode six, Veronica would be doing this, Jughead would be doing this, Archie would be doing this, and sometimes we veer from that plan and sometimes we don't, but we start with that as a base plan, and then from there we go, where did we last leave them at the end of episode five, where do we want them to be at the end of this episode, and start breaking their stories individually. And then we'll break an Archie story, a Betty story, a Veronica story, and a Jughead story, and then... Whoever else is in the episode, like if that's a Cheryl episode, we'll break a Cheryl story or a Kevin story or a Josie or whatever. And then we'll braid them all together f- to make the episode complete.
1: How much of that macro mysteries are intertwined with your lead characters? Especially in the first season, obviously, that was the Blossom Twins. They were kind of separate from the core four uh, initially. So yeah. how must you keep that dynamic in mind of uh, let's uh, intertwine those characters with this macro mystery?
2: Yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, the macro mystery in uh, season one was who killed Jason Blossom and mostly who was on that path was Betty and Jughead were trying to break that mystery. And Veronica would help and Archie would help, but mostly it was Betty and Jughead. And in season 2, one of the things we wanted to do was make sure that all the characters were more involved in the overall Story. And so, I guess this is a spoiler alert for people who haven't finished season one of Riverdale yet, but at the end of season one of Riverdale, Archie's dad gets shot. And so, in season two, he is intimately involved and has a personal stake in finding out who shot his dad. And that launches the season two mystery, which gets more convoluted and exciting and twisty from there. But it was important for us to make sure all the characters were sort of had their fingers in the overall mystery pie.
0: So, what are the, like, the nuts and bolts of breaking an episode for you guys and getting it onto the page, like from the outline to the script? And what's the timeline for that as well?
2: We do everything collaboratively in the room. So we sit and we talk through... The first thing we'll do is we'll just say, okay, let's start with Archie. Here's where we last left him. Here's where we want him to be this episode. And we'll talk through some potential story beats that he could be in. And we'll start stringing those together, just sort of like verbally, like putting ideas together in a way that makes sense to get him from point A to point B. And then when we finally have something we kind of like, we'll maybe write it on the board and we'll write all of the beats down and there'll be like maybe 10 or 12 Archie beats. Then we'll move on to Benny and Veronica and Jughead and we'll do all the characters who have major roles in that episode. And then from there, we'll write their story beats down on note cards, and we will start putting the note cards up on a cork board, but like braiding the stories together. So it's like, if we start Archie here, then we go to this Betty B, and then this Jughead B, and we start like making it all fit like a orchestra, like, (laughs) harmonizing (laughs) with each other, you know what I mean? And in that process, we're talking through the story again, and then we're talking through it again. And every time we talk through the story, we find ways for it to meld a little bit better and for it to all sort of harmonize. And oh, and this Archie beat has a nice parallel with this Jughead beat. Let's put those together and and people will see the resonance there. There'll be a thematic that come out. And then when we're done with that, we write an outline And that outline goes to the network and to the studio for notes. And then when that comes back, we get the notes from them and we make adjustments and we do notes and changes and tweaks. And then the writer writes the script. We all have our hands in every piece of the story. A lot of times people will ask me, like, oh, which character do you write for usually? And it's like, oh, it doesn't really work like that. Like, we all write all of the characters. We all write all of the stories together. This story has this person's name on it, who's the person who ushered the story from beginning to end but ultimately we're all like sort of intimately involved in each other's stories led by Roberto who's guiding the whole thing like a conductor.
1: How did you tackle kind of your first script and how did that whole process work? You just mentioned the whole credit rotation yeah. thing. How, how does that work on Riverdale?
2: Yeah it was nice because they paired me with another staff writer. It was both our first years on a show so it was nice to have someone else there to sort of like help you not freak out or freak out with you. You right. know whatever <laughs> you need at that moment emotionally. Our our episode was episode 10 of the first season. And so I got to see it happen nine times before it was my turn, which is good. And then it's just sort of the cool thing about it is you've seen the process from beginning to end with all the other people. But the thing you don't sit in on is like the notes calls with the executives. And that was something I was really eager to hear. And one of the very cool things is you get on this conference call with some people who it's basically their job to read the scripts and find where the weak spots are and help you find ways to make it better. And so sitting on these calls and having them point to places and being like, oh, Archie could be stronger here, or the story could be more interesting here. And listening to Roberto, my boss, like, on the fly being like, yep, I hear that. What if we did this and pitching solutions and it's really fine surgery solutions because at that point you don't want to be like rebreaking the whole story because it's mostly done. So you're trying to find a solution to making Archie more active that doesn't affect this storyline, that doesn't affect this location, that keeps Betty in the story in this way that we need for her storyline to work. And it's like all these little tiny tweaks that have a ripple effect out, but that don't change too much. And watching Roberto do that on the fly, live in front of me on the notes call is like, holy cow, I'm watching a master at work. It's, it's really inspiring to see that happen.
0: Is the discussion mostly happening between him and the studio people? Or, and you're just kind of listening in to understand what had been discussed? Or are you kind of be like, hey, what about this? Or-
2: mostly I'm just listening at that point. <laughs> it's a, in the room, you know, I'm much more active. But on those notes calls, I let him take the reins. And he's the one who's, he's the one deciding which notes are important, which notes he's going to fight back on, and which notes he can fix right there on the fly in front of everybody
0: do you think that changes with like some of like the co-ep's and stuff would they be more vocal when talking to the studio network or is it always just like we let out commander in chief yeah
2: the- <laughs> i think yeah that's probably something that changes with different shows but on our show like roberto has such a strong idea for how the show should be and such a strong vision for it that anytime we're talking to anyone at his level like an exact or above It's just like, let him take the reins. And then if you had an idea or something like, oh, I had a pitch for how you could fix that, I would probably wait until the call was over and be like, oh, what do you think of this or this or this? And then he could either take it or not take it, but not ask him to make that decision in front of.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. How did you adjust your own sort of voice and personal writing to the style of the show, and especially the showrunner's voice? Did you ever write spec scripts before you were staffed on Riverdale?
2: I did write a few spec scripts before I got on Riverdale, and it was only to to apply for those fellowships, which I never even got a phone call back about. (laughs) And besides that, literally no one has ever asked to read a spec script. There's just not even a part of the conversation unless you're applying for those fellowships. I had written a few, but... Writing for Riverdale, it has such a specific voice, and it's kind of such a bonkers show in a lot of ways. I focus a lot on thinking about Roberto's voice and how Roberto writes and how Roberto talks. You're really trying to write these characters in the way that he writes them, and so you're trying to like sort of infuse yourself with Cheryl, but also with Roberto's version of Cheryl when you're sitting down to write a Cheryl scene. I mean, ultimately, you take your best crack at the scene, and then you know that Roberto will rewrite you anyway if he doesn't think you landed it, and so there's a certain safety net there of like, I want to give Roberto the best draft possible so he doesn't have to rewrite me. But if I screwed anything up, like he's there to robertify everything <laughs> <laughs> robertify. Um, That's but i did word. i i mean i read i read all the scripts and i read every time the revisions come out i read those because roberto will send out revised scripts before every day of shooting just to take one last look at the scene before they shoot it and make sure that it's exactly how he wants it done and he'll make little tweaks here and there one of my favorite things to do is look at the pages the next day for that day's scenes that they're shooting and compare it to what the scene looked like the day before. And sometimes it'll just be changing an also to a two or something like that. Or sometimes it's rewording a sentence just so it sounds a little bit more lyrical or a little bit more like how he likes it. And I look at that and I think, okay, so Roberto saw this sentence and he changed it to this. Okay, got it, got it. (laughs) (laughs) And like every time I feel like I'm learning, like I'm AI that's like learning (laughs) a little bit more like what he likes and what his voice is. But of course, I'm also trying to bring my own voice to it because like I was hired for a reason. They're pulling me in not just so I can be like a little baby Roberto. (laughs) Like that's not why I was hired. So I am bringing the things that I like and the things that I think are cool and interesting and unique to the show. And hopefully that shines through.
1: Do you feel that showing that difference between, let's say, your voice and Roberto's voice, is that difference more prevalent in the writer's room where you pitch kind of your own ideas versus in the draft where you essentially trying to imitate the voice of the genre.
2: Yeah, definitely. I like to pitch stuff in the writer's room and then he has the chance to say yay or nay there, as opposed to when you're actually writing the draft, you're writing basically off of notes that are pretty explicit by the time you sit down. And not only that, before we go to draft, he'll go through all the cards and sort of orally describe the scenes. As we go through it and everyone's sort of pitching alts or making small tweaks to make sure it all flows together, our writer's assistant writes down that sort of monologue. By the time you're going to draft, you have snippets of dialogue, you have... The structure of the scene, you know exactly what you're writing before you start writing. So there's right. really not that much wiggle room. You know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And if you have a better idea at that point, you decide whether to bring it up or not, or write that version or not. But mostly, you pretty much know exactly what you write. And sometimes there's been dialogue that's been the same has been said specifically this dialogue six times in the room, and yeah. you're like, you better
1: not stray from that dialogue. <laughs> like, that's the dialogue. In our room, we have in, in the writer's notes, we have quotes of the day.
0: So whatever quotes are said in the room that need to be in that specific episode are going to in that episode. Yeah. How many stages are there to that rewrite process? Does it go back to the room to punch up? Is it just Roberto taking passes at it?
2: So the writer does their draft and a lot of times they'll have help from other writers to put all the scenes together in order to make a complete draft. And then they'll polish it up and make it their own and make sure everything flows together and works perfectly together. And then when they're done, they send their draft to Roberto, Roberto will do his pass on it. And then when he's done that, and and oftentimes at that point, Roberto's also cutting it down to size because the writer's draft will be too long. Because Riverdale is a dense show and a lot of story beats happen. And usually your first pass on those stories, especially if you're writing off the notes is a 70 page script or something like that (laughs) that that is like oh this is too long we have to cut this down to size so roberto will be polishing and also cutting and deciding what doesn't need to be there And then at that point, he'll take it back to the writer's room and we'll read the draft and we'll table it and we'll go through every single page, this scene, this scene, this scene. Does anyone have any notes here? Does anyone have a better piece of dialogue for this? And that's where you can pitch things like a punch up on a joke or alts or this reference isn't quite fresh enough. We need something better. Or this is weirdly duplicate to something that happens earlier. Can we fix that? Stuff like that. And then when it's done with that, it goes to the network and the studio for notes. And then it goes to production, who themselves will often have notes like, oh, we can't get this location, it's not available, or you have too many night scenes and it's summer and so we need more day scenes because you, your nights are not that long in Vancouver in the summer. Things like that. Or you can't have this actor, he's on a feature, or whatever. All of the like practical uh, considerations come into play there.
1: Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what the writer's job is on set and who supervises the episode and what is kind of your day-to-day when you're on set?
2: I just got back from Vancouver, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, so... Brian and I went up to produce episode 10 of season two, which we wrote. And the thing that the writers know more than anybody else is they know the script inside and out intimately because of the process I just described where like you've been through it every single scene, every single beat, and you sort of know it in your bones. And you know why this scene was cut for time. And you know why this scene was changed to something different. And you know why this scene takes place in this location, because it has to because of this or that. And a lot of times the actors have read it a couple times, but they don't know it as intimately as you do. And the director has read it a couple times, but they just came off another show and they're going to another show after this. And nobody knows the script as well as the writers. And so the thing that you can bring to the table is when you're sitting there and the director says, oh, well, do you think that this character would storm out at the end of this scene? You can say, oh, they can't storm out because we already shot the scene that comes after this and they didn't storm into that scene. So it would be a weird emotional thing. And it's like, oh, right, right, right. And you know that because you know the script so well and you remember it. Somebody else might just miss it. Or other stuff like, you know what's happening in the next episode and a lot of times other people don't. You know what's happening at the end of the season, a lot of times other people don't. We have a murder mystery, and only so many people know the answer to that murder mystery. And the writers are one of the people on set who do. We try to keep secrets pretty closely guarded on Riverdale so that it's not like just getting out there. One of the things you can keep an eye out for is making sure that you're not tipping one way or the other to the murder mystery so that people will get it beforehand. But the big thing is just making sure that the intent behind the script... Roberto can't be on set because he's in Vancouver. He's making all these other decisions. He's in the writer's room. He's running the show. So you're there to make sure that every scene, the intent behind the scene plays through and is coming out. And sometimes an actor will want to play it really sad, or really passionate. And you're like, well, I think the intent behind the scene is that you are playing it this way. And if they have a strong feeling, then you are sort of the liaison to, well, let's call up Roberto and see what he has to say about that. And let's talk to him because ultimately it's his decision how he wants this. You don't want the dailies to come back the next day and Roberto to call you and be like, why did this actor play this scene like this when we had always talked about it being like this?
1: How do you decide sort of when to call Roberto versus make the decision on your own?
2: If it's the sort of thing where it's just like a line tweak and they're like, I'd prefer to say it like this, then you can say things like, well, let's get it the way in the script. And then I also like your version, so let's do that version. If you don't like their idea, you can say, let's just get it in the script. If you do like their idea, you could say, let's do it both ways. If it's something bigger than that, you can talk to them about the story reasons why you decided to write it this way and what you always intended it to be. And if that actor has a strong feeling like, oh, no, no, that doesn't feel like it fits in my character, then it's like, okay, now you need to have a conversation. With her. <laughs> if like I explained to you what we had always intended, and that doesn't ring true to you, then it's a conversation between right. you two.
0: Do you also get to sit in on the editing and the post production process for your episode? And what's that like?
2: It's really cool. I went to school for, like I said, production. So I have a lot of editing experience. And I was a freelance editor for a while when I finished school. So I have been on the editing side of things before. So it's really exciting and fascinating for me to go into the editing suite and watch someone who's like a professional editor, who's really freaking good at his job, do that work in front of you. So yeah, we get to sit in on the edits and sit there and watch cuts, and Roberto will give notes. And one of the cool things to do is Roberto will say, "This beat isn't landing. Can we fix it so that this happens and then this happens?" And and mostly, what we want to get is this character is struggling with this. And I'll be thinking, wow, that's going to be hard to do. Because I know in the dailies, the character was picking up a glass at that time. And I don't know how you're going to cut around that. It's going to be really challenging. And I'm thinking about all the practical considerations the editor's probably thinking about. But he's such a friggin' pro that he then will be like, yeah, uh, how about this? And he'll show you and I'll just be like, oh, yeah, wow, that looks great. Amazing. It's just like the difference between... What I was doing in film school and what this guy at the top of his craft, who's like, obviously a professional can do in front of you is just like, I'm constantly amazed by the talent and skill of everyone we work with. And also just it's so exciting to have like the resources of Warner Brothers behind you. So you can say something like, Oh, I think this song should be in this episode. And they're like, great. (laughs) And they just put it in. And it's like, is that it? We just say, we want that song, and they put it in. Like, (laughs) amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, like in school, you'd be like, okay, no, but maybe you can find like a a free knockoff version of it. But yeah, with the Warner Brothers, you can just like say you want a song, and it goes in. It's amazing.
0: How does some of the editing process affect the story, and what kinds of decisions are you making regarding that?
2: Like I said, Riverdale's a dense show, so a lot of times our first cuts are too long. And so we're finding ways to tighten it up, And sometimes it's easy to see what fat you can trim and you get it out of there. And then other times you have to make some creative decisions. Like how can we tell this story via a montage or how can we tell this story without dialogue and just use the visuals of the scene and maybe put it in slow motion and you get to, you see that scene and it's only half the time. And then sometimes it's, this scene doesn't work. Sometimes it's like there's something unspoken in the scene that's not coming through. And you have to find ways in editing to make that unspoken thing clear. And the easiest way to do that is to do like a flashback to something. And you're like, oh, that's what they're not saying in this scene. Okay, so that's the biggest way. And then there's other ways to do it of like, is there a score that you can use, like a little piece of music that'll make people think, oh, I know what that character's not saying in this moment, because I can hear it in the score. Or is there something where you can cut back between close ups of looks like she looks and then he looks and then she looks and you're like, okay, now I know what she's not saying. It's stuff like that, where you're trying to find visual ways to tell a story Whereas when you're in the script phase, a lot of times you're just trying to find story beats, but a lot of times it's with dialogue or with action. But in editing, you're taking all of the pieces you already have and trying to craft them into a story that works. And it helps you be a better writer, honestly, because you can see the things that don't work and the things that do work, and you can start to write towards the things that do work. And I think it helps a lot.
1: So stepping back a little bit into the restroom, uh, you mentioned this whole room etiquette. Could you talk a little bit about how that works on your show? And from your own experience, how do you decide when to chime in versus listen?
2: It was a lot of reading the room when I first got there. And now I feel like I try to speak when I have something I'm pretty sure is a good idea and not just speak when an idea enters my head. Unlike in my everyday life when I just speak as soon as uh, I think something (laughs) and I have no filter and it gets me into trouble all the time. In the writer's room, I'm constantly filtering, filtering, filtering. And I'm making sure that when... I open my mouth, it's something that I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is helpful. I'm pretty sure, even if he doesn't like this idea, this is an idea that's helpful. And so that's something I kind of had to learn to do and was challenging for me. It took a lot of energy to constantly be going over ideas in my mind and making sure that they were useful. And sometimes in that process, the annoying thing is you're filtering something and you're thinking, is this useful? Is this helpful? I think this moves the story forward. And in that process of thinking about it, they've already moved on to another topic yeah. in the room. And you're like, oh, well, okay, well, I'll just hold <laughs> on to that one. And if we circle back around, I'll say it. And if not, then it dies with me in the grave. Uh, <laughs> and that's fine. But the more I'm there, the more I sort of get better at knowing when it's good to talk. And there's also times when it's like, this would be a good time for you to speak up, Britta, if you had an idea. Like, they're all spinning their wheels. If you had the idea that's going to save the room, now you should say it. And I'll be like, but I don't. I don't have the idea. I got nothing. Sorry, guys. So it's like, it's just basically waiting until I have something good to say and then saying it. Which sounds like really simple advice, but yeah, that's it's kind of actually more difficult than it sounds. One advice I heard from somebody else that I thought was really good that I've been thinking about a lot recently is sometimes when you say something really good or funny, or just like land something great in the room you'll think you're sort of like invincible and you'll want to speak again immediately and it's like th- th- what you should do at that point is stand up and go to the bathroom and like not <laughs> say something else immediately let everyone revel in your genius yeah, yeah. walk away from the explosion yeah, exactly. <laughs> drop the mic drop the mic and go pee and then come back because otherwise you're gonna be like ha 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 I, I'm a genius who has nothing but good ideas and you'll say something else and it'll be like oh, okay you ruined it that was a nice terrible <laughs> <laughs> idea. Uh, yeah, I've never actually done that. And I should. But yeah, it's just like, honestly, getting better at being honest with yourself about what's a good idea. And what's not a good idea.
0: Is there any kind of consideration to politics in the room in terms of the, you know, different levels of writer? Like, if the co EP is talking, you should be quiet? Or, you know, I don't know. Is there anything like that that you have to keep in mind?
2: It's subtle, but it's definitely there. It's like the person who has the most authority is Roberto. And then after him, are the upper level writer's you don't want to interrupt somebody else who's speaking, but you also don't want to interrupt a staff writer who's speaking. There's a lot of two people speaking at once, oh, sorry, go ahead, no, you go ahead just careful gentle like everyone wanting to be supportive of everyone else's ideas and and maybe we're just in a kind of weird therapy fueled <laughs> su- supportive kind writer's room and i recognize that they're probably not all like that but it's just a lot of like everyone just trying to make space for everyone else to talk and i feel like if i have an idea everyone stops and listens and they don't dismiss me just because i was a staff writer you know it's genuinely interested in hearing what i have to say and hoping that i have the idea that's going to crack this story wide open
0: and disappointed when i don't and Speaking of that, how does the room kind of keep itself open to people's different perspectives and identities and be sensitive to that, both in the room and on the show?
2: I feel pretty lucky that this is a pretty diverse room. There's a lot of women in the room. There's a lot of gay people in the room, which for me was sort of an important thing, walking in and feeling like, oh, I can be myself in this room and I don't feel like I have to censor myself or kind of bro out or anything in order to be here. (laughs) And I've definitely been in situations and meetings where I felt that way before, I think it's something that it doesn't come up all the time, but when it does and somebody raises a point like, ooh, we, we probably don't want to do this because it can be seen as racially insensitive or do we really want to do that with this character who's gay or do we really want to... It's like, oh, you're right, yeah, let's find a better way to do that or let's find a way where the story still works that mitigates that or whatever. You never want to like be the person who's blowing up a story and being like, oh, you can't do all of that because it's all racist or whatever. <laughs> you're trying to find the ways to be like... Find a way to make your story work and also being sensitive to all of these issues. And I think everyone's sensitive to it. It's a constant battle of like trying to find the pitches that work best for that.
1: So fandom is obviously a big part of your life and your identity. What was it like when the show premiered and you had this sort of amazing uh, fan reaction?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was wild. It was kind of surreal for me because I've been in fandom my whole life, starting with the X-Files and then going through like a bunch of different fandoms for a while, especially right after I moved to LA, like only was getting a few freelance gigs. I really didn't have a ton going. I didn't know a lot of people out here. I was spent a lot of time in my apartment watching Supernatural and hanging out on Tumblr and like talking about it with people. <laughs> and so I know how it feels to like have shows completely consume your life. And I know what it feels like to be a fan and sort of obsess over something. And to know, even before the show came out, that this felt like a show that might reach people in that way, and then to watch it premiere and see it happen was kind of surreal and exciting and being like you are the person on the other side for the first time in your life like all the times that you in your mind have like mentally written a letter to like chris carter to tell him what he should or should not do with the x files in in the next season you know like now you are that person and other people are either mentally or actually typing out (laughs) treatises about what you should or should not do with these characters and sending them to you
1: on Tumblr or whatever. Do you guys have rules of engagement?
2: I mean, honestly, I think there aren't that many, like, sort of internet-y people in the writer's room. Uh, There's a couple. And I, I think that I'm a little bit more engaged than a lot of the others. So there aren't, like, written rules or anything. But what I try to do is just not engage that much. Because honestly, when I was a fan... Like, if Chris Carter was, like, up on Tumblr, like, answering fans' asks all the time, I'd be like, this is ruining something. This is a bit of the magic. Because I think to be a fan of something, you have to have a little bit of distance, a little bit of your imagination, and you projecting onto the show, like, your hopes and dreams, and you projecting on these actors and these people. And if someone's out there, like, being a little too open, I feel like it might ruin that but also that could just be me uh, growing up in an age where the internet was different and maybe that's not what it's like for kids today so I try to be careful and I answer questions a lot of times when they have to do with like the craft or writing advice every once in a while I'll answer some like trivia about like an episode I wrote or something like that but I'm not going to get into like ship wars with anyone <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, <Yeah>. oh boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not taking sides on any of that <laughs> stuff you know that's just where you get into trouble and it's like uh, and, and, and it's like I don't think any fans are getting into fan because they want to start a ship war with a creator i don't think that's what they want they don't want the writers like wading into that that's for them to talk about you know right. cross
1: that off my to-do list
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're on season two now how are things different for you personally from when you were on season one
2: i feel more comfortable in the writer's room i feel more comfortable walking in there i remember there were times in season one where like it would sort of wash over me like Someone would be standing at the whiteboard writing something on the whiteboard and I'll be like, they're writing a story beat on the whiteboard because we're breaking a story, because we're writing for television right now. <laughs> the things we decide will end up on television. And that would sort of and I'd be like, Okay, focus, Britta, stop. Focus. And then like get back into it. But now that happens less and less. It's I'm a little more like taking it for granted and becoming like a jaded old hag. But no, I mean I, I think That it helps a lot, and it helps a lot to know we have fans because in season one, we wrote the entire season before the pilot even aired. Technically, we knew that people would watch the show and it would air on TV and there would be fans out there, but now there are much more present uh, presence. And you write something knowing, like, oh man, we're going to get blowback for this on Twitter, you know, (laughs) in like kind of a joking way, you'll say in a room, like, oh, you better watch out if you're going to put that in your episode, stuff like that. It's just exciting and a little bit more exhilarating, but you kind of can't let it paralyze you to know that millions of people are going to watch what you uh, are writing. And every line you write could get gifted and put on the internet. And <laughs> 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 um, uh, I think the biggest eye-opener to that was in Brian and my episode of season one. It had been pitched in the room and talked through in the notes and was... Clearly, there every step of the way, and then it made into the episode, and it made it to air, and then immediately became a meme. Which was jugheads. I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. Have you ever seen me without this hat on? That's weird. <laughs> yes. right. I love that. Uh, which is honestly, it's beautiful. It's a work of art. I I, I love that speech, and it is kind of hilarious, over the top, obnoxious thing to say. But it's also, if you watch the episode in context, I think it makes a lot of sense and you understand where he's coming from and you understand a bit more about his character. And he's, in that moment, he was struggling to connect with Betty, who came from a very different, like, sort of social circle and has a very different background. And he was wondering if they could ever really be intimate or be in a relationship together if they were going to be so different and have such different reactions to social situations. So that's where that was coming from. And then to watch it sort of blow up and become a meme and, and you know, go through all the iterations and like things that memes go through was sort of like, wow, yeah, you got to be really careful what you write in any episode because anything could become a meme at any time.
1: On that note, I'm actually curious to hear if you have any other examples of the differences between writing in sort of a vacuum in the first season and now with the show airing week to week, how that is different in the writing process.
2: I think we have a general sense of what fans, well, not just fans, I would say viewers, like and respond to and what they don't respond to. It's not like we're reading their meta- (laughs) or or anything. It's not like like we get a a portfolio delivered to our desks of like, we've pulled the fans and they like Bughead, so keep writing that. It's not like anything like that (laughs) happens. It's just when we sit down to write the show, it's like we're trying to write an interesting, dramatic, surprising, real portrayal of these characters that people have come to know and love. And you hope that your version of that story invests people and gets them to keep watching. And knowing that certain things you do for the sake of drama and for the sake of telling a compelling story will elicit emotions. And sometimes you get really excited. Those emotions, you're excited and happy. And sometimes those emotions are you're devastated and you're ruined and you can't believe that the show would break your heart like that. And then sometimes you're really happy again. And and it's a roller coaster of emotions. And that's what people look for in a TV show. It's interesting to watch that happen live in front of you and to know what's coming down the line. And it's also exciting to get messages every morning on Twitter or whatever and, and see those reactions and, you know, you know exactly where you stand with the fans that <laughs> particular week. Because uh, they tell you a no in certain terms. But does that affect the show? You know, you just try to write the best show you can and hope that other people respond right. the same way you do. You're not necessarily writing to them or away from them. You're just trying to write a good show.
0: How have you seen the show itself change from season one to season two? Was there any kind of concerted effort to do something different season to season or...
2: Well, season one was about Jason Blossom's murder. I mean, the overall mystery arc was about it. It was about a lot of different things. But that was one thing. And then season two, it was like, well, you can't just have one other student end up dead on the shores of Sweetwater River and they solve that murder. You have to do something different and presumably slightly bigger and so season two we have a serial killer in riverdale yeah. <laughs> naturally uh i don't know what season three will be maybe two serial killers <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're gonna get like a supernatural syndrome where the world has ended six times yeah the runs come back to life yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but they keep saving the world nick right that's oh. the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so it, i mean that was part of it but it was also like trying to find ways to keep all the characters engaged in the story So that you didn't have one character like sort of out there floating who's not really part of the mystery or anything like that. And then also making sure that the kids and the parents all sort of have strong stories together so that it's not just having the stories and then having like one check-in with their parents and their parents not really having anything to do, or parents having a story and their kid floating and not having anything to do. You kind of want everyone to have a compelling story that all kind of touches each other's stories. And that's challenging to create something that braids together like that, but I think season two does a pretty good job
1: of it. Uh, Now, this may be entering controversial territory, but do you have a specific character that you particularly enjoy writing for?
2: Oh, boy... I love writing for the show, and writing for every character is my favorite. (laughs) That said, there is a particular joy in writing Cheryl's scenes, particularly Cheryl and her mom, Penelope, when they're together. You can have fun with it, and you can be slightly more heightened than you can when you're, for example, writing Archie and Fred together. They're never going to use like crazy language or anything. It's always like, hey, son, you're doing a good job, son. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Uh, but <laughs> Cheryl and Penelope are a little more like, you can just have a crazy idea that kind of makes you chuckle to yourself, and you're like, can I say that? I think I can say that with these two. And you can actually write it, as opposed to being like, no, dismissed. So that's just fun.
0: Now, you managed to slip the words, I ship it, into season one. <laughs> Congratulations.
2: <laughs> that, that's funny. That was actually the first, I think it was, was that episode two? I think it was. And that, that was the first scene I had ever written for the show is they asked me if I would write this one like tiny little scene. And I was like, I will. And as I was writing, I was like, I think this character would say, I ship it. I think <laughs> I'd say, I ship it. And so I, I like wrote it. And sort of tentatively, I was like, can I, am, is this just me like imposing my will on the show? But I was like, no, I think so. And then it worked. And it stayed in the... Episode that was the first time watching that episode live on the CW It was like oh my god I wrote that line mm-hmm. and <laughs> and and knowing that it wasn't just a line that like was in the notes or whatever like if someone else had written that scene they wouldn't have written that line and the scene would have definitely looked different like that was like my fingerprint an on brand fingerprint
0: wow <laughs> I also saw the video on safe shipping recently was did you have anything to do with that it was like a promo thing for EW oh
2: yeah I saw that too and everyone I knew forwarded it to me no I had I it had nothing to do with that I, I think that was the marketing department But they were like, Britta, did you write this? I was like, no, I did not. (laughs)
0: I'm sure they were influenced by you. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) They probably read an advanced copy of Ship It and they were like... We have to do a nod to this.
0: Well, I mean, speaking
1: of, so you are now about to publish your book, Ship It. Segway! uh, Segway, (laughs) which is uh, adapted from uh, that uh, famous screenplay that you mentioned. yeah, Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that book? It's about
2: Claire, who's a teenage girl who writes a lot of gay fan fiction about her favorite TV show. The relationship on the show is not canon. The characters aren't gay on the show, but... She thinks they should be. So she goes to Comic-Con and basically tries to convince the showrunner to uh, make the ship canon on the show. And she goes through a lot of sort of Comic-Con shenanigans to make that happen. It's told in two perspectives between her and also the actor who plays one of the characters on the show, who sort of by turns like baffled and horrified that someone would think that this character is actually gay when he's (laughs) playing him so straight. And he's clearly such a macho, masculine guy. Like, why would you ever think this? And it's about his journey to understand fandom and understand why this is important to Claire and figure out what his role in all of this is and how he should behave. When I started writing it, I was a fan and a sort of aspiring TV writer, but not yet a TV writer. And that's when I wrote the screenplay. And then I sold the book, and I started adapting the the screenplay into a novel. And by that time, I was on Riverdale and was seeing fandom from the other side. And not like from the other side, I was I was experiencing it, I will say from the other side. And there were some, I wasn't surprised by fandom so much, but I was surprised by certain things in TV where I think one of the biggest surprises was just seeing, like, how much of what you assume as a fan is totally intentional and directed and part of an agenda is just, like... Happenstance and accidents and budgeting problems. <laughs> 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 this actor isn't in this scene not because they're trying to deny you a gay ship, but because of a scheduling issue, or because someone screwed up, or because the actor has a cold and <laughs> didn't come to set that, day, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like a lot of it's just a lot of that. Did that um, change
0: how you were writing it then?
2: It, it didn't change the plot or anything like that. Like the the story is still the story, and the story is a story of a fan and a creator coming together and trying to see the humanity in each other and find some common ground and understand where the other person is coming from. And that remained the same, but I think it did help me give a flavor to the TV side of things to understand why these decisions are made the way they are. And a lot of times they are just accidental or coincidence or something out of control of the creators. And sometimes they're not, and sometimes they're completely intentional and, they are directed, and as a fan, there's no way to know what decisions were made for what reason, because you're just in complete darkness. All you have to go on is the one hour of television you experience each week, and you're trying to extrapolate from that, and you don't know why each decision was made. And on the other side, as a writer, like I know why some decisions were made the way they are, and you know you don't talk about it, because it's part of the secrecy of TV. So this book was sort of my way of saying, like, here are some of the issues that go into this, and hopefully fans understand tv a little better and hopefully like i would love for every like up-and-coming teen star to get a copy of this book before they, <laughs> before they get cast and be like hey read this you might understand what you're about to experience a little bit
1: more like cw giving it away uh, yeah exactly <laughs> it's part of your start pack now yeah, exactly yeah.
2: Exactly, you get a free Birkin bag and also a copy of Ship it. <laughs> uh,
1: What
0: was kind of the process of writing that novel based on a screenplay? Sort of how did you adapt that writing? Also, why did you decide to write it as a novel instead of maybe just trying to get it made as a movie straight away? Okay, well,
2: the why is easy. It's because I sold it and I got paid. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, honestly, I had never written a book before. I had never really considered writing fiction before. I mean, thought about it, but not seriously considered it. And and really, the only fiction I had written was fan fiction for my entire life. And so I took a meeting with somebody who was like, we love your script. And uh, we're looking for plays that can be adapted into young adult novels. And we think yours would be great. Are you interested? And I was like yeah, I think I am interested. That sounds great, actually. And so I sold it, and we did it. So that's the why is like, (laughs) they came to me, really, I I wasn't really seeking it out or anything. And then I was kind of worried. I read a lot of fiction, and particularly YA, and I love YA. But I had never really thought about writing it myself. So there was a lot of like fear and anxiety going into that process of like, am I writing a book correctly? I didn't go to school for this. I never took a class on this. I I don't know anything except for how to write screenplays how do you write a sentence that sounds nice as opposed to (laughs) in a screenplay you just write like he walked into the room he sits he you know and then dialogue you know and then maybe a parenthetical if you're feeling like fancy uh and in fiction like you have to like describe the room what is he wearing what's it smell like what's it sound like i guess i didn't describe that many smells in the book (laughs) but that kind of stuff you know and it's like And the constant, constant, what are they thinking at every turn? And when you're writing a screenplay, you don't have to know what they're thinking at every moment. And you can do this thing in screenwriting that you can't do in like a first person book, which is you can write a scene and then like something sort of dramatic happens at the end. Like a character gives him a note and he pulls out the note and he reads it and he kind of looks into the distance and you go like off, frank, inscrutable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whatever you're like what's frank thinking smash and, cuts black <laughs> yeah exactly and and maybe like when you're on set or whatever like matt damon will come up to you and be like what's frank thinking in this moment?" it's like matt that's your problem you figure out what <laughs> frank's thinking in that moment you pull out that note and you think something you look into the distance and you feel it and then we call cut and that's saying you don't have to write it <laughs> but in a book you have to write it it's like frank pulls out the note frank reads it and i it's like i pull out the note i read it and i think what the hell am I going to do next? Or whatever. Like, you have to know every beat. And so it made me realize how much of my screenplay, because I was really writing the novel with the screenplay open in front of me, like reading the dialogue and the action lines and then looking at the blank page and being like, okay, how am I going to translate this to fiction? And at every beat, I was like, what's Claire thinking at this moment? What's Forrest thinking at this moment? How does what he just said to her make her feel? And realizing I had done some of that thinking and worked through some of those issues, but not all of them. And there was a lot that I hadn't Figured out. And so it made me realize that as a writer, if I'm ever writing a screenplay again and I get stuck on a moment and I don't know how to get through a certain story beat, I will now go write it as like a first person fiction and write it through because It makes you realize, like, when he says this, I think this. When I say this, he looks like this. And you have to sort of get every beat in your head and you understand what they're thinking. And then once you know what your characters are thinking, you can write the dialogue. But it's kind of hard to do it the other way.
1: Have you taken uh, anything from the writing experience and put it into use in TV writing?
2: Well, I'll say the other great thing about writing a book is it's a little bit longer than writing a screenplay, and so it feels more luxurious. You have a little more space, a bit more playground to play around in. And so you don't have to get into a scene as late as possible and leave as soon as possible you can like actually have characters walk in a door instead of already starting with them in the room standing there talking you don't have to pre-lap anything you know (laughs) (laughs) and in Riverdale we're pre-lapping everything always you know what I mean just because it's go 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 and so when I was writing Ship It, I would like work in the morning, I would work on the book in the morning, and I would come to work at Riverdale. And it really kind of brought into relief the differences between writing the book and writing for TV. Just in terms of timing like that, in terms of all kinds of things. Another thing that's different is when you're writing a book, there's only one name on it and it's yours. So you better be able to feel like you can stand behind everything that you wrote in that book. Whereas writing for Riverdale, it's a group effort, literally completely a group effort. And really, if there's one name on it, it's Roberto's. And so if someone's out there, the face of the show, taking the credit, taking the blame, it's Roberto, it's not me. And My job is to sit there and pitch good ideas and sort of be an idea machine and do all the work that's asked of me. But at the end of the day, he's the one deciding we're going to go in this direction. I like this idea. Britta, not that one. Yes, Britta, this one. And I don't have to make those decisions. But with the book, it's all on my shoulders. So it's positives and negatives.
0: What's the actual process of sitting down and writing a book? Are you using an outline? Are you just going chapter by chapter? Are you sending it off to editors and publishers and agents? How does it all work?
2: Well, they had read the screenplay and liked it. So they were basically like, write the screenplay play as a book I was like okay so then I had an outline right as the screenplay yeah and there were a few things I wanted to change and flesh out, a few scenes that I had cut from the screenplay for time that I wanted to put back in, and I wanted to tweak the ending. So I did all that, wrote the manuscript. I wrote it in Google Docs, so nothing fancy, you know, <laughs> like Time's New Roman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you don't need final draft book edition? Or no. no. Oh, my God, please. I hope they do not create that. That would be terrible.
2: And then when I finished the manuscript, I had like a deadline. It's really like they send you out to sea and like go, okay, write this. And then when you're done, you send it back to them. So it was like, I don't know, six or eight months later or something like that, that I, I got to my deadline and it wasn't done yet. So I asked them for the extension. And then I got to my deadline and I sent them the draft. And then I was like, is that a book? I is Did I do it right? I, <laughs> I just like wrote 80,000 words and sent it off. Is that the process? That's the process. And then my editor, who's a very smart, very wonderful lady, who was very aware that I was coming from screenwriting and needed a little bit more handholding because I had no idea how books work, was wonderful and then sends you back notes. And then I took another whack. So there's like the first line of notes. And then there's another round of notes where it's just like line edits. And then I think there's another round of notes that's like copy edits. Oh, yeah. And then proofreading. And then it's done. And it was like... It was actually went very quickly, and I kept going, like, we could still change things, right? And she's like, we're getting kind of hard to change things now, Britta. And I'm like, but we could still change things, right, if it's not good enough, right? And it's like, Britta, if you want to change things, it's be better, it's last chance to change things. No, never. But now or never, really. And there's, like, this panic of, like, oh, my God, I wrote something. It's going to be out in the world, and it's got my name on it. And And I've never written anything like that before, and there's a lot of, like, anxiety that goes with that. But also, on the other hand, I am so proud of it and excited for the story to be out there. And I believe in the story and I believe in the characters. So, and this process is so freaking long that I can't wait for it to be on shelves and people to actually read it and like tell me that they love it or hate it or whatever, but like just for it to be over and for it to be out there. Right now, the ARCs are out, which are the advanced reader copies, and it's going out for, like, reviews and blurbs and stuff like that. It'll come out on shelves on May 1st, so it's still, like, six months So when people, it comes out. But uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or
1: wherever. Nice. I and mean, we'll put a, a link in the show notes. Uh, what are kind of the plans to promote the book?
2: Everything goes to plan. Hopefully, there'll be a third season of Riverdale, and hopefully, I'll be writing on it. So, I, I may be busy at the time. But I'll, I'll certainly have a launch party in Los Angeles and do, like, a reading and some stuff, and I want to go maybe some weekend trips to some other cities where I have friends and know some bookstores. So maybe Austin, Portland, Seattle, and New York. I definitely do that. And then there's all kinds of things that I didn't know about, like talking to librarians and going to librarian conferences. And- <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that's a thing? Wow. Yeah, that's a thing. I, I-, I love librarians so much, and-, and I can't believe they have conferences where they all get together. It's uh-huh. like actually kind do of they- exciting to think about looking out on a sea of like librarians. Like How wonderful is that?
1: <laughs> do they dress up as Edgar like, Allan Poe or something? It's
0: kind of I- like Oh a- my God. If they cosplay
2: <laughs> as their favorite, Authors, nothing would make me happier.
0: Libcon. <laughs> <laughs> Libcon. I I've worked in a library for five years. I shouldn't know this, but I was <laughs> shelving books really. You taught me you didn't cosplay as a <laughs> well, You mean... just
2: you did. You just no one ever knew who you were. <laughs> yeah, it was a very obscure 17th century traditional yeah. character. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But what are your kind of general plans and goals for your career and your future? What would you love to do?
2: Um, God, that's such a good question. I, I, at the moment, I'm so excited th- and ex- sort of exhilarated that I'm on Riverdale that it's, that I don't think that too much about it, but I really should. One of the pieces of advice that my agent gave me when I got this job was... Just make sure you don't stop writing, because a big mistake a lot of people make is they get their first job, and they're like, oh, I'm in the system now. It'll take care of me. I have an agent. I have a credit. Like, everything's great. And it's like, no, you got to keep hustling and keep writing, and you should be writing a pilot, which I haven't done, but I should do. Uh, Don't tell my agent. And (laughs) I mean, I wrote a book, so you got to write a pilot. You got to have fresh writing samples. And... You know, for the first three years on my contract, I'm not allowed to develop anything. Not that I would want to be developing anything right now anyway, but at a certain point, I'll be allowed to develop and so then maybe I'll have pilots that I want to develop and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, One of the things I feel most lucky about is that I'm in on a show that if I weren't working on the show, I would be watching it and probably obsessed with it. So I feel very lucky to be part of that. And I also feel very lucky to be in a, on a show where the room is kind and supportive and caring people, especially in this age where it seems like new allegations are coming out about mm. actors and uh, writers and showrunners every week. I yep. feel super lucky to be in a room where I'm not being sexually harassed. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that was such a rare thing. It's but sad uh, that that's one of the perks of the job. <laughs> one oh of the perks God. of the job is I don't get sexually harassed. <laughs> where, wherever I end up after Riverdale... You know, I'd like to not be sexually harassed. Um,
1: And I would (laughs) like for it to be
2: creatively fulfilling. And if I can reach both those things, I'll be pretty good.
1: (laughs) What a bar to set. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go, do you have any advice for writers out there who are trying to get that first staffing job?
2: I think there's really two sides to it. And the the first side is you got to be doing the work and like writing your stuff and getting better at writing. I wrote a ton of scripts before I wrote Ship It!, And I would show them to my friends and listen to them when they'd say, this isn't there yet, this isn't ready yet. And I'm really glad that I didn't sort of accidentally on a fluke or whatever, end up with an agent or go out for staffing years before when I finally did, because I wasn't ready writing wise or emotionally. I wasn't yet ready for my first job you got to keep working and listening to podcasts is fun and you should keep listening to this one definitely but also <laughs> don't just listen to podcasts also do the work and you got to keep writing yeah. but the second part is you got to be once you have scripts you have to have people to show them to and you have to be willing to put yourself out there and take the risk and get your scripts into the hands of folks and not just random people who you cold email from the internet but like you know <laughs> going out and like making friends and being social and widening your network but like not in a lame way but like in a cool like making friends friend's way and like so that when you finally do have a script that your friends are like this one's it this one is good enough to get you an agent they'll like you and they'll want to show it to somebody and maybe that person will show it to somebody who puts it in the hands of an assistant to an agent who gets you wrapped or whatever (laughs) so it's it's twofold you gotta do the work and then you gotta also like be a good person and like have friends
0: (laughs) <laughs> and what are you watching on TV right now?
2: The last show I loved was Glow. It continually surprised me and cracked me up. The show I'm watching right now that I love is The Good Place.
1: Which oh, The Good Place is
2: yeah, so we good. Both love you. Yeah, and, well, that everyone had that reaction for like like the last year, and I was finally like, "Fine, I'll watch The Good Place." Oh my <laughs> god, what? Well, you get, can't be that good. And then like, okay, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> And then I also really love The Handmaid's Tale. I can't watch more than one episode in a row, so I would like watch one episode of The Handmaid's Tale and then like immediately watch something happy and fun Mm -hmm. to like cleanse myself of it. But it's like it feels like good, important shows.
1: Do you have any resources that you recommend to our listeners, be it books, websites, apps, anything uh, that would help uh, TV writers?
2: I really like this program called Google Docs, (laughs) which I use to compile all of my ideas and my outlines to myself. And the cool thing about Google Docs is you can use it from any computer. So I do it at home and then I do it at work and it all is in one place. Have you heard of it? It's called Mm -hmm. Google Docs. And it's free. (laughs) Yeah. No, um, honestly, I used to listen to a lot of podcasts and then at a certain point I was reaching a level where... I felt like I was listening to more podcasts than I was actually working, so I kind of stopped doing that. But you should keep listening to this podcast, because it's great. (laughs) And I used to read a lot of books, particularly I would look for like memoirs by screenwriters, and I used to love those. And then at a certain point, I realized I was doing more of that than actual writing, and so I kind of had to cut myself off. Now I find it more inspiring to read Like fiction books and learn the craft of storytelling by reading other storytellers and like experiencing stories as opposed to obsessing over structure and. How someone got their agent and stuff like yeah, that. Which, reading
0: about everything around it.
2: Right, know. exactly. Which it felt like uh, maybe was a distraction at a certain point. Although that said, I did learn an immense amount, and I think at a certain point I just hit a saturation level and like kind of had to stop because it was kind of depressing me. But yeah, so I mean, I guess what I would I would recommend is reading books. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Including this one called Ship It. This one called Ship
2: It out May 1st from Freeform Books. Uh, (laughs) I think you guys would really like it, honestly. You, particularly, you listening right now, I think that you would
0: really like it. We agree. (laughs) And we're going to put the link in the show notes so people can go and pre order that. (laughs) Well, thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 67. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those reviews will help us get more new listeners who are cool people just like you.
2: (laughs) Five stars. Five stars. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks again to our sponsor, the twenty eighteen tracking board launchpad pilots competition. Paper team listeners can use the code paper team, all caps, all one word at the checkout to save fifteen dollars off their entry. And you can learn more about all the launchpads, current competitions, and exclusive partners by visiting TBlaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. You're on Twitter, right, Britta?
2: At British Shipset.
0: Ooh. Very Good relevant on, on brand.
1: Yeah.
0: I know. Uh, if you have any <laughs> thoughts, feedback yeah shipping mail i don't even know what i was Is there gonna any say any fan fiction shipping alex and i please send it in <laughs> to ask you can send that to ask
1: at paperteam.co and i think i'm gonna burn that email address <laughs> I'll, I'll read it on there uh, and what are we doing next week well next week we're going to be talking about macro storytelling how do you write a season-long mystery or uh, anything that's longer than just the one episode any quick tips on that for
2: yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know how to do that. It's that's that's definitely not what
1: Riverdale is at all. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll see you next week. See you then.